Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the politics and media podcast. We're recording on Sunday morning, and I'm joined by co-hosts Jan and Rusty. Welcome to the podcast. Morena. Hey. We had an issues podcast last weekend, so we've got a lot to get through. Um, obviously, been a whole range of just huge international news um, stuff here in New Zealand as well. But let's start in Europe, where the non-presidential elections in France. <laughs> the, they they call it the legislative, the Assemblée Nationale, so the basically parliamentary elections. All right. Uh, and coming into that, uh, obviously, we'd had um, Macron uh, win the French presidential elections. Um, there had been a lot of talk about a, a collapse, but then a, a rise um, among left wing parties, uh, kind of coordinated under Melanchon, um, alongside a risk of the far right under Le Pen. And some of that kind of happened. Do you want to take us through what, <laughs> what happened in the lead up to that uh, um, and, and what the results have been? Yeah, maybe let's let's get some basics out of the way. So um, just like the presidential election, the um, parliamentary elections, the National Assembly elections in France comes in two rounds. Um, so in the first round, you have a number of candidates who, um, who run for the seat. And then two weeks later, you have a runoff between the two um, first place candidates. And um, it's pretty normal that now that parties don't run on their um, own platform on their own, basically, but that they form kind of coalitions. Um, so as you mentioned, um, there was a left wing co uh, coalition called NUP. Uh, um, so it translates as New Ecologic and Social People's Union. Um, it's coordinated by France Insoumise under Mélenchon, um, it's the biggest party now of that block. But um, yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty flexible um, landscape now, especially in the wake of the first um, win of Macron in 2017, where the party that he um, ran for didn't exist before the 2017 um, presidential election and um, hadn't been in parliament before as a party. Some of the parliamentarians had been in parliament before for either the um, mostly the, um, the socialist party, so the center left party, or the Republican, the center right party. Um, but yeah, so this kind of setup of like new kind of coalitions for um, an election is is pretty is pretty standard now. Big change, um, but it seems to be a change that's sticking around. And so you have 577 elected uh, deputy, they're called. And um, Macron's party is the largest block in the new assembly, so 245 votes. That, however, is short of an outright majority for which you need over 280. Um, and so it is a question as to how that kind of minority government, it's not quite a minority government, but it has a minority in parliament, will govern. Um, so France has a strong presidential system. To a certain extent, the president does have the power to rule by decree, as um, the president does in the United States. Um, but you do also need parliamentary majorities because um, ruling by decree, as in the United States, is a kind of less um, durable way of making law and governing, and um, certain processes cannot be circumvented. So it is the question as to what kind of coalitions Macron will try and build. Um, the second biggest party is the, or the second biggest block is the left block with about 130, 131 um, elected um, parliamentarians. And then it's the, uh, the big, the big, big winner is the far right. So they went from um, the Rassemblement National, um, Le Pen's party went from eight members of parliament to 89 members of parliament, which is a huge shift, um, although arguably an unsurprising one because it simply better reflects the popularity of the party. Um, across the political landscape in France. The other maybe important thing to note is that three seats which were up for election in the um, National Assembly in French Polynesia were won by pro-independence candidates. So that's something to look out for and see how the political landscape there develops. I know it's only relatively close um, to New Zealand, but um, it is definitely super interesting to, to keep an eye on how 
you know, these kind of um, Departement du Tremer, so this kind of French euphemism for colonies which they still occupy. Um, yeah, how that develops. And then you kind of have the, the center-right party um, who has lost about half their seats, so they're around 60 now, um, kind of experiencing a similar collapse to the to the center-left party five years ago, basically. So that's the kind of broad parliamentary landscape now. Um, the only interesting thing that it might be worth mentioning in that context is the question as to, you know, you get these runoff elections. Um, so one of the things that Mélenchon was criticized for in the presidential election was that even though he said we will not give a single vote to Le Pen in the second round, um, there were a lot of um, centrist and center-left commentators who thought that wasn't quite strong enough a denial of um, Le Pen and that he should have explicitly called um, for, for a vote for Macron. And um, it's interesting then to look at these kind of runoffs where um, center-left candidate faced um, a far-right candidate in the second round. Um, so this is going to be some numbers, but basically um, where a where left-wing candidate faced a far-right candidate, 72% um, of people who voted Macron in the first round abstained, 16% voted for the left, and 12% voted for the far right. Um, and among the, the voters of the center right, it is much, much worse. So only 58% didn't vote um, in the second round, but 30%, a full 30% of voters um, who voted uh, center right in the first round um, in, a, in a runoff between the the left and the far right in the second round, 30% um, voted for the far right and only 12% for the left. So there is that kind of radicalization of the, of the right, basically. So a lot of voters um, switching to the far right from the center right, um, which in some ways makes sense, obviously. Well, radicalization of the center as well, um, as far as some of those numbers go. Uh, what's the difference in effect if you're abstaining knowing uh that it means the far-right candidate wins yeah that is a good question right um abs abstention though in france is is quite popular in some ways um so a lot of people especially during the selection abstained um so um basically you had a very low um turnout so turnout was probably around 46 percent um in the parliamentary elections, which is low um, among 18 to 24 year olds, was only 29% who voted, 71% abstained um, among 25 to 34 year olds, which I think is our particular demographic. Um, in today's podcast, only a third voted, two thirds abstained, right? Um, and that turns around. So by the time you get to like, you know, 60 to 69, 70 plus, it is about two thirds voted and one third abstained, right? So it is clear once again that like, you have older voters who are leaning um, more towards centre-right or the, the far-right. And I'm, I'm locating um, Macron's party here on the centre-right because I think that is, um, given the policies that he's looking to pursue with the more natural affinity, shall we say, at the moment. So from over here, uh, and just like in terms of that international reaction, um, there's been a lot of chatter around the, uh, I guess, disjunct or uh, contradiction of centrists or, or people who support Macron uh, screaming at the left that they must vote for Macron. They must have this full-throated support for Macron. Otherwise, they are literally fascists um, because they are allowing Le Pen to, um, to gain some, some kind of foothold in the French system. But immediately, as soon as there's any, anything on the table, um, in the other direction, that is not applied. Uh, so, and I assume there's a similar argument occurring in France, um, where they say, okay, why didn't you vote for uh, the left candidates then? Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, that is that is what I um, what I tried to mention earlier, right? That like. When Mélenchon said, oh, we're not going to give a single vote to Le Pen, that's not quite strong enough. But when Macron doesn't call on his voters to vote left in a runoff between the left and the far right, um, that is somehow, um, you know, politics as, as it is to be expected. It is really 
worrying in some ways because the yeah the natural affinity now right there because there is there are questions around like how do you build coalitions now because um there, there is so in germany um, which has the same um, political system as new zealand now um coalition governments are the order of the day so in the north of germany for instance where elections happened not too long ago in the state of schleswig-holstein the greens are just formalizing a coalition with the center-right cdu the conservatives um, and that's pretty normal that um, every party basically can enter a governing coalition with every other party that excludes basically the AfD, the far right, and it excludes um, the Linke, the far left party, um, where the conservatives will not, they basically equivocate between the left and the far right, which again is not a surprise. Um, but in France, that kind of, those kind of coalitions haven't historically been necessary. Um, and so there is the question as to how you now given this landscape build majorities because on the one hand the left has the biggest block so in some ways is the most natural kind of opposition party and your most natural um, party to extract um, concessions from or to extract support from um, is the center-right and the center-right has been decimated at this election and really is looking I think ever more kind of squeezed between Macron's party who you know um, is notionally centrist, but certainly leans center right or has leaned center right um, in the five years since the since the first election, and the far right, which is getting getting stronger. So there is that question as to what is their political profile now, and I think they will they will do some soul searching and probably arrive at something that um, looks dire, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so I don't, I you know, in any case, I I. It's, it's a good parliamentary result for the left. I don't know how that translates into more political power for um, the left as a whole in France in the next five years, but that is my very kind of superficial um, sense. And I, I, I obviously hope to be wrong. No, I think I I just still can't get over um, those turnout figures that you've, you've cited because, you know, there's this way of perceiving it as, as the centre cannot hold this um spreading out to the 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 far right and the the left or the further left and that you know this is this is the country radicalizing but honestly especially with those youth turnout statistics and down in the you know 20 percent um really just kind of speaks to you know a kind of complete disengagement and, and and disinterest um and when the you know the best that the system's been able to offer you up until this point for the last 20 or so years is Emmanuel Macron I can you know <laughs> I can understand why why that's the the case and I guess the the disappointing thing is that you know with a concerted effort um a unity on on the left uh, through through new, that that doesn't seem to have moved the the needle um at all um and I I don't know if there's the, the same kind of, of discussions over there about the kind of you know, what in New Zealand we call the, the missing million, that there's this large block of voters out there that, you know, parties of the left could appeal to if, if only they would listen. Um, obviously, it's a much larger share in, in France. So maybe longer term, that's the more the more hopeful story. But um, yeah. I think, yeah, I think you're right. And this is something that I think um, is relevant in New Zealand as well, especially as like, um, not the national elections, but the local elections, right? Like in Auckland, certainly are coming up. There's turnout is incredibly low, um, and I think it it has in some ways the same point of origin, which is the lack of a belief that um, the local government or the national government can like make an improvement in your life, like actually has something to offer, can actually change your life for the better. Um, and in some ways, the problem is that. Um, even when the left doesn't govern, that belief can be undermined by governments of the day because it looks like they only ever have something to offer to the rich, right? I mean, even now, um, the stuff that's coming out um, in New Zealand about, um, you know, IRD having investigated helicopter money and they basically couldn't do it because they, you know, couldn't get, they couldn't get people's bank account details. And like, it's, I, I haven't looked into the details of this here, but like, it wouldn't be surprising to me at all if, you know, it's not that they can't find bank accounts for people who are wealthy, right? But that like, ultimately the question is how do you actually get money to people who are poor? 
um, and people who are at the margins of the system, right? Those are the people you're going to have trouble targeting. And that's ultimately like a, um, a sense of neglect, right? And I think France has similar issues. You have, you know, um, you have a lot of young people, especially non-white young people who feel completely alienated from the system. And in some ways that is by, I don't want to say by, it's not quite by design, but it is by, it is a deliberate result of like discourse and policy choices, right? So um, when five, 10 years ago, they were talking about, you know, the banlieue and like the non-white youths in the suburbs, basically, and how, oh, they weren't integrating and they weren't being French enough, right? Like there is that sense of, well, you don't really fundamentally belong. And as a result, people have become disengaged um, because if the state isn't interested in you and doesn't have anything to offer you and people only ever tell you that you don't belong, why should you engage with it at all? And the problem for mm. the left is that without political power, you cannot, you have trouble, I think, um, remedying some of these some of these issues. And I think that to some degree is similar across the board, right? Um, I wrote about this in Berlin recently that, um, you know, people in Berlin voted to expropriate corporate landlords and the social democratic um, mayor basically said, we aren't going to do that. And it's one of these things where if people express their, I mean, that was, that was even more binary because there is a choice as to, yes, we are going to do it or no, we are not going to do it. This isn't just a vote for a party program. This is kind of more direct referendum vote. Um, but if but if people express to you their desire for their lives to be better, for certain things to change, and then you ignore that, that is callous, of course, but it also in the long term really undermines people's faith and like the ability of the state to, to do anything good for them. And that is something that the right benefits of, because then those people don't vote um, and you can't blame them because... If the state never, you know, if, if, if you never benefit from any of these big programs or whatever else, if you're always the one that falls through the cracks, so if you're always the one that's kind of alienated, then yeah, why should you? It doesn't make a difference to your life. And, and that's a huge the, problem. That's the problem. The, the right can act on their program, which is effectively, I'm just going to make people who don't look like you or who you don't lo- like feel worse and mm-hmm. become more marginalized and face more barriers. Um, I'm not going to do anything for you, but it, it's a much more, you know, within the, the kind of limits on what a democracy is actually permitted to do, especially in Europe and the, the context of um, the European Union and the, the kind of overlay of power that they have, the, the kinds of programs that um, you might want to see, that there are strict limits on that. There's far fewer limits um, in, in terms of the program that a, a party of the, the right can offer. Um, you know, as you sort of see yeah. um, further east in, in, in Poland or in Hungary, um, whereas the, the, you know, the left um, faces constraints that the, the right doesn't. Yeah, and also just, just a final brief point. And I, one of the things that I think is missing when we talk about Macron a lot of the time outside of, um, outside of well, French language like coverage is how much he really is a kind of awful character. Right. I mean, um, like, and I don't mean this, I don't mean this like just in like a political sense, but in a, in a, in a, in a kind of condescending way, right? Like he will, people who, you know, at events come up to him and tell him like, oh, I, I have such trouble getting work. I have all of these problems, blah, blah. And he'll just shout at them and say, well, just walk across the road, get a job. Like, that's not my problem. Right. Like he's not a relatable character um and one of the things that i was struck by um is that the the acronym for his block in the uh in the parliamentary election i'm sure this is just coincidence um is so we talked about nip which is the left-wing block um macron's block is called uh, ensemble so together um and the the acronym for that is ens so ens and ens is also the like elite French, um, they call it grand école for like, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, like for a president who again is like to so many people like symbolizes these kind of, you know, Republican elites, these people who like, he didn't, he didn't go to UNS, but, um, but, um, these people who progress to these like elite institutions of the Republic, right. To then like literally have his governing coalition, um, 
with those kind of represented by those letters again it's like it may just be coincidence but it like is so it's so weird um, i don't think there's any um I don't, I don't take any political communications as coincidence at this point i start from <laughs> what do they think they're doing <laughs> his 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 own block was called En Marche, right? At at, at one point, which the, the acronym, his... yeah, EM. Like yes. <laughs> the guy compares himself to Jupiter. He he clearly has an ego. So I'm I'm fully willing to believe that you know it's it's basically the French equivalent of if the Liberal Democrats were the Oxbridge Party in terms just as a, <laughs> an analogy for our um, English speaking uh, audience. Yeah, that's true. And like um, you know, and and that in some ways was. That in some ways was interesting because, of course, like his campaign was all about, and this is this is in some ways the problem with the presidential system, right? Like it has to personalize these campaigns in a particular way. But yes, he he um, certainly lent into it in a way that, like, I found really bizarre. Um, yeah, and even if it's not, you know, even if the acronym isn't intentional, I think it speaks to something about like, oh, we want to address, you know a white coalition of voters in France and that nobody saw that like maybe people, you know, like ONS means something particular to, to people. Like it ha- it's such a byword for intellectual um, and like social elites, right? Um, that I can't, I can't imagine that other people wouldn't have noticed it. Um, I haven't seen any memes about it, but I'll keep an eye out. I was just going to say, if you were looking for sort of an avatar of like the opposite of everything, you know, it's, it's very hard to pin down what the Giajon Yellow Vest protests were about. And I know it's pretty contested territory, but if you were looking for, you know, what they were against, that's a perfect kind of metaphor for the, the kind of, you know, um, elite politics that, um, you know, they were united in opposition to. Yeah. And I think it was, that was a super interesting um time because it was so it was in so many ways familiar and unfamiliar at the same time and there was some really interesting you know coalition building at the time where people said uh you know the the slogan was something like end of the world end of the month like it's the same struggle right like mem comba people would say and i think that's right like it is that kind of question and it, it the problem with the gilet jaune protests and this is where maybe we can make a transition to new zealand is like the takeaway for a lot of people was that um, actually working people, right, was the sense, um, oppose um, measures that promote um, a turn away from hydrocarbons, right, and from fossil fuels. And I think that was a huge misreading of that because I think people support it, right? People overwhelmingly want the world to still be inhabitable for their kids and their grandkids. It was just that there was the question, there was the sense that um, the cost is going to be overwhelmingly borne by them in a world where, um, you know, the rich have ever more wealth, ever more capital. And now you're telling me, right, that I have to pay more for fuel, even though I can't, I can't afford an EV, right? It was that kind of a sense, like I can't afford to replace a piece of shit car that I have because I simply don't have money. And now, right, like um, to get to my low wage job, especially out in the countryside, where again, like France, public transit is good, between big cities and in big cities. But in the countryside, you know, France is a big country. Like in the countryside, public transit is bad often. Um, so if all the only way you can get to work is to drive, right? And then fuel is becoming more expensive and you kind of have no way that that's being compensated and you simply don't have like spare income, then yeah, people got really upset. And they got really upset too because it was imposed by, you know, this guy who stands for nothing, if not, you know, these kind of Republican elites who for decades have neglected Right, like people who who are poor and who who feel like nothing has been offered to them. Um, so I think in some ways that is, you know, in some ways that is a similar like configuration as I think Labour is struggling with here. The sense that you know, I, I was wondering about that, and well, I guess we'll come back to that at some point. But I was wondering to what extent, like, is it all realistic now that the um, that the uh, fuel tax cut will be reversed before the election? Yeah, they're in a really bad position on that, especially because they've already extended it. Um, yep. We've just seen news come out recently that BP, um, you know, and it'll be the same for a bunch of other petrol companies, has posted a $280 million profit. Um, 
and fuel prices have continued to go up after uh, they took the fuel tax off with, with very little um, media coverage of that. You know, we don't have the same uh, excoriating of the petrol companies uh, that you do of the government for petrol prices going up, uh, even despite this these record profits. And I'm just imagining, you know, in a couple of months when the fuel tax is readjusted, um, when it goes back to uh, if. normal, uh, if, if. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, at the moment, it is, it is meant to. Um, mm. But yeah, if that does go back on, it's going to be a nightmare for Labour. Yeah. And um, that, that, I think that that's why, that's why I say if, right? Like, I cannot, this is the problem with, with introducing a, an energy subsidy like that, um, is that you, you, once you put it on, it, it's almost politically impossible to remove it. Um, yeah. And instead of, you know, putting that money into building up alternatives, making us, you know, uh, robust to these things, which, you know, begrudgingly to give Labour credit, they did do through the um, public transport uh, fair cut that, that they've introduced. But, you know, um, effectively, Robertson and others are, are taking a punt that peace in Ukraine breaks out um, before they have to reverse the, the fuel tax cuts, um, which is, yeah, I... I think they've really got themselves into a difficult corner. But the the, the bigger picture story there doesn't go away, as you were saying. That the the costs of, you know, if we had a, a cost reflective carbon price, it doesn't matter. The ETF, will, you know, the ETS will fix everything. Um, what is your plan for when petrol is four dollars a litre? Because that's effectively what you're asking for, or or more. Um, and it is it is predominantly people in car dependent suburbs and smaller towns, you know, in New Zealand who are, who are going to bear the costs of that. I'm going to be fine. I, you know, live within walking distance to work. That's not everyone's situation. So, um, it's a yeah, it's a, a, a wicked problem. And it's lost tax revenue. You know, it's mm. you know, this is just money that's gone. Like it, does, you know, it doesn't exist anymore, and it may never exist again. Um, to help with any kind of transition uh, unless Labour decides to do a windfall tax, which they absolutely should be getting ready to go by the end of the year, please, um, especially given these enormous profits. Uh, they're just, they're screwed. Like, they're, like, good luck balancing the books, mates. Yeah, and this is something, right? Like, I think the, the fuel tax cut cost something like $120 million a month or thereabouts. Um, so given that they're already like underspending, um, it's really, it'd be really interesting to see to what extent like that now redu further reduces the like kind of fiscal room to maneuver um, in the lead up to the election. And part of the problem will be you know they're saying now oh we're gonna we're gonna have to be careful we're gonna have to balance the books all of that but the situation it seems like they're navigating themselves into is they're committing to spending this money at least until the election and then of course next year they will want to introduce like further spending because they will want to make sure that they don't fall too far behind in the polls right um so i wonder i don't know i wonder like to what extent they've really navigated themselves into like a really tight corner that in the next 12 months, they'll have trouble getting out of. There's nothing anyway, that Labour is better at. No. And and <laughs> I, I feel bad for, for citing him, but I think it, it is a good point. Um, Eric Crampton on Twitter sort of did a look into how that policy was was developed. And it, it is very clear that it was not a, a you know, extensively well thought out long-term strategy. It was, you know, um, an emergency reaction. I don't have as much of a problem with, you know, um, the government needing to be responsive to to emergency situations, you know, for about eighteen months, there was the something they were incredibly good at, um, and you know, I think something that the public service can take a, a small amount of credit for in terms of mm -hmm. flexibility and adaptability, um, but <laughs> not all rapid responses created equal, um, and and doing you know, what the, the, the solution they ended up coming up with, I think is going to cause them problems longer term. Now, you know, there has been plans to kind of substantially revise the way 
um, road transport in New Zealand is 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 funded, and maybe that's the the solution that you know, um, come budget twenty twenty three. Um, those plans are, are in place and you can kind of hide the reintroduction of fuel taxes within um, a kind of greater reordering of how we pay for roads. Um, but it, yeah, it's still kind of um, trapped between a rock and a, and a hard place. Hey, I, I do want to get us back on track. Um, we were talking about voter disenfranchisement, low voter turnouts, um, you know, miles and miles of auto dependent suburbia. Yeah. And, you know, the anointed uh, political elite, uh, which <laughs> places us very firmly in a, a recent New Zealand by election um, just the other weekend in Tauranga. Uh, yeah. What, what was happening there, Rusty? Um, basically, exactly what you'd expect. Like, I, you know, I, I know part of, of the point of listening to a podcast is to, to entertain people, but. Um, I, I really don't have a way to spin the Tauranga by-election to be some kind of, you know, like the by-election we've just seen in the UK, some kind of great portent of, of things to come. Um, it was the most stereotypical national and Labour candidates you could imagine, a, a teacher and a banker um, running off in one of the safest blue seats in, in the country. Um, and the, the National Party candidate won. Um, so all of that's kind of what you, you would expect. Um, but I think there's probably two things out of it before we get into talking um, about the, the performance of, of Sue Gray and the um, Outdoors and, and Freedom Party. There's kind of two, two things that I, I'd be taking away from it. I think one is it basically tells Tell, it does tell us what we already know, but it is sort of the, the first test we've had since the um, general election in, in 2020 that, broadly speaking, the polls probably aren't lying in terms of the situation the, the Labour government does find themselves in. This doesn't look like the run-up to 2020, where it turns out that they were doing eight points better um, than, than the polls would have led us to, to believe. So I think... Um, no, this is not a disaster for the Labour Party, but it, it really does point to the kind of um, decline in, in support for, for Ardern and, and her government. Um, and I guess the other thing, and I, I honestly, this was encouraging in terms of a media landscape. I haven't seen um, from any commentators a lot of attempts to kind of gin this up into something it isn't and to, to some kind of, you know, oh, it's a referendum on Jacinda Ardern's performance, um, which, you know, that's that's a good sign that I am not the only one who, um, you know, despite having uh, an, an interest in this stuff, was kind of, kind of bought out of my skull by the results. Um, so, I mean, yeah, Sam Irfindahl, certainly is a National Party MP. Um, you know, MPs who have come up in by-elections historically do tend to become, um, you know, future leaders. Um, both Ardern and, and Michael Wood um, won uh, by-elections in, in Mount Albert and Mount Roskill, so maybe he's quote-unquote one to watch. But, um, yeah, much beyond that, I think... Um, you know the, the 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 issues that 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 were coming up. I think are, you know probably the the two dominant ones is one that we were were just talking about, which is the cost of transport. Um, if you want to look at a, a city that's kind of in New Zealand that that's sort of a, the the closest thing to sort of the the neoliberal nineties centre right dream of of what a city should be like, and and you know Tauranga before the commissioners were brought in and everything collapsed, was kind of held up as this um, example for other small towns in New Zealand to follow um, of you kind of business-friendly regulatory environment, integration between the, you know, um, what local government does and the, the needs of local business. Um, it was seen as this the success story um, in terms of its, you know, pattern of development, because it, you know, it's the fastest growing city in New Zealand, or, or at least it was. Um, it is very car centric. The ability to put public transport in efficiently is is a is a challenge. So the, you know, recent rises in fuel costs are, are a huge issue. If if you live, you know, down the, the 
back end of Papamoa and have to, to get into to the city or into, you know, one of the business parks for work. Um, the, you know, fuel um, price increases that we've we've seen are, are a real issue. So that kind of cost of livings crisis was the one of the core issues. And then I think the other one um, and the extent to which this is real versus a media phenomenon is something I'd, I'd really like to know more about. Um, but rising crime rates and the gang wars and all of um, the, the narrative around law and order um, was absolutely something that the candidates were being asked about and, and were giving their views on. And then, and I, I think this is perhaps the best topic for us to, to pick up on, um, sort of, again, events driving things, um, was the reactions to all of the news that was coming out of Bethlehem College, um, the, you know, frankly, appalling um, policies that that um, this state integrated school um, that, that receives public money um, was saying about the LGBT and particularly the transgender community that was happening then followed by the attack on the, the gender dynamics and, and rainbow youth clinic that sort of suddenly forced a lot of candidates to stake out positions around religious freedom in schools. <laughs> um, and yeah, which I think, you know, given the, the other topic we, we were in, um, the other news that that's broken this week around the Roe versus Wade decision and the way the Christopher Luxon has or hasn't responded to that, or or what kind of decisions a, a future government that he might lead would or wouldn't make. Yeah, I think I don't want to. You know, sometimes we talk about these these cultural war things in terms of um, being imported, and I definitely think the the way some of these things are discussed is. But but the idea that this is you know this kind of anti-LGBT prejudice or, you know, reactionary views on um, reproductive freedom uh, are somehow, you know, foreign to New Zealand, I, I, I think is incorrect. And I think we are beginning to see a, an upswing in, in political and extra political action, I guess, for, for want of a better word, on the, the kind of reactionary side there, which I think brings me to the, the final thing that I found it interesting but perhaps not as interesting as some commentators um, have said um, which was the performance of the Outdoors and Freedom Party which is essentially a, a, um, a coalition of supporters of the anti-mandate protests that were in, in Wellington earlier this year. The, the candidate there was everyone's uh, favourite former lawyer, I think I can say now, maybe that's slanderous, uh, Sue Gray, who's, you know, led a lot of the, the legal challenges to, to vaccine mandates. Um, her party got 4.7% of the vote, I think, which has sort of kicked off a, a, a wave of discussion of, well, is this a, you know, a new a new force for the, in, in New Zealand politics? And I, you know, and I, I said as much online, um, was pretty sceptical that this is uh, anything that generalises and anything that's going to come to, to dominate you know, New Zealand politics to the same extent as the, the Labour and National Parties, if you think of them as the, the first two forces. Tauranga is exceptionally conservative, uh, it's exceptionally old, it's exceptionally white, it's, it's, not, it's not exceptionally religious, but there is a, a very strong evangelical community there. So in terms of the demographics that, that a party like this um, might be appealing to, it, it's, it's favourable ground. The, so so I, I think it's exceptional by-elections are weird, turnout is incredibly low. So the ability of a, you know, a thousand or so people to, to make an impression is, is much greater. But then subsequent to that, there has been a lot of discussion of a kind of right unity party between the various forces ar around um, Ryan Tamaki, core base of supporters in Rotorua, which is, you know, in that kind of um, Bay Plenty area, and potentially New Zealand first. Um, so that that does give me pause that there, there could be something more going on there, that the exact shape that that well, number one, whether that succeeds once they get to the question of who gets to lead it, um, I think is is the number one stumbling block because everyone thinks that it's going to be a um, you know a vehicle for for their own personal ambitions. Where that that goes in terms of a, a program or a you know kind of I won't even say policies because it's it's you know not things that are expressed in that kind of frame. It's 
but a, a set of priorities and cultural issues and, and what have you, there's a quite a bit of internal conflict and internal diversity between those movements. Like the the anti-mandate protests for, for everything they were, they weren't purely a kind of you know, Christian fascist reaction movement. They, they there was a, a lot more going on there, and how easily all of those different forces can play nicely together. I think definitely remains to be seen. Um, obviously, I think there are some commentators who are desperate for this to happen. Um, have been, you know, upping its prospects since the the protests in, in February and March, um, and. It, if nothing, it will make for great television. But I, I think between that uh, and the arson attack at the um, Gender Dynamics Clinic, it's genuinely scary. <laughs> like we smugly think, and I, I think there's definitely been a bit of this around the reaction to the road decision. We have this kind of safe assumption that oh, she'll be right. New Zealand's not like that. You know, we don't go in for all that kind of American nonsense. People have um, literally been using those lines as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think we should be panicking or anything, anything to that extent. But I think this is, you know, we are beginning to see the kind of much more obvious manifestation of, of, of some of this violence. And yeah, it's, it's a concerning trend, especially in the context of, you know, a likely recession in the next few years, the Labour Party government beginning to run out of steam, a national party who's going to be looking for kind of attention and and issues that they can grab onto. I, I think that probably cashes out more in terms of the um, tough on crime law and order beat that um, they've absolutely been going 100 on. But yeah, so that's sort of my my basic re reaction to, to Tauranga. The, the core result is is boring, um, but that I think there are some trends within there that we are going to see play out over the next um, sort of 18 months as we head into 2023. You said so much there that is interesting and I can only pick up on a couple of things, but the question around um, this kind of rising crime discourse I find super interesting because it's again, I think you're right to say that a lot of this isn't imported, but I think the, um, on the one hand, there is a kind of salience, which I think can come from abroad. So I'm thinking in particular about in the US, uh, in, the, in the spring there. Um, so in March, April, there was a really big anxiety around um, rising retail crime, they called it. And again, there was the sense that you know, similar to, um, to the anxieties about um, ram raids here, that that kind of crime was getting ever more violent, right? That there was this kind of explosion in not just the number of these kind of attacks, but um, in, the, in their kind of brutality and in their like kind of brazenness. And that I found really um, interesting then when like a couple of months later, that kind of anxiety started up here and I really wonder to what degree the numbers bear that out again like to a certain degree it doesn't really matter what the numbers say right if people have these kind of anxieties that then media plays into then it feels real to them and it doesn't matter how many numbers you show them that is the feeling that they will have um, mm -hmm. and that of course is also relevant now you know when when somebody like um, Leo Malloy right talks about like dilapidated town centers like that's what he's getting at right he's getting yeah. at that kind of anxiety about um, about crime and about what it does to the city and whatever else. Um, so I, I think you're right. Like it's not imported, but the the kind of discursive tactics, if you will, I think yeah. resonate. Um, and that that's important too in the context of you know the arson attacks in Toronga um, and you know the the Dobbs decision. Um, so the the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the case is Dobbs, um, and the the shooting. Um, at a nightclub or a gay nightclub in in Oslo as well, right? There is that kind of sense in which these, it's not that that discussion is important, but it is, I think, still true that um, this kind of violence um, in one place can embolden actors in another. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, 
and this is where like the internet plays a huge role, right? Like people spend time in similar kind of, you know, whatever it might be like 4chan or parts of Twitter, or, you know, I think that's something that we, we have to be mindful of that, like the, the concepts aren't important, but the salience of the tactics um, and the, the kind of broader, like violent backlash is mm-hmm. resonates globally. I think that that's really important too. And I think we yeah, have I- to keep in mind that it's not just at the, pointing and down the right it's not just where, where that violence or that stochastic stuff is happening it's also in terms of uh pr and policy um and what politicians feel comfortable creating a media campaign around so these kind of decisions that are occurring all these kind of things that are happening um if there's an electoral boost from that uh and you know someone in an act or national put reactionary party here sees that they're more likely to just pick that up and you, they can just go and get that that strategy wholesale essentially yeah i i i think that um that's all right i i guess you know something we we do have to face up to in terms of you know is this a a, a media phenomenon or or something real um around crime rates is that you know the last couple of years basically since the the um covid disruptions there, there has been a, an increase in crime particularly in auckland um, I think the mistake that gets made is automatically jumping to lock the bastards up as a, you know, this kind of popular punitive reaction that there needs to be some kind of case from, from you know, the centre-left at least, um, but also, you know, a, a genuine progressive response to this because this is, you know, the kind of communities that are being victimised in these attacks are, you know, especially small retail operators and kind of suburban Auckland. Um, This is a a real thing for people. Um, And, you know, people are going to seek out a a solution. I think we need to look at kind of, you know, especially because this is focused around, um, you know, youth offenders. It's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe two and a half years of the most disruptive kind of social and economic conditions in the past hundred years maybe that's done something to the kind of sense of, you know, secu- well, not just the sense of security, but the actual economic and social security these, um, you know, kids and, and communities have that, you know, it's, but I think the, where the, as you say, the overseas influence comes from is in the way these things are discussed, is in the kind of pat answers that people come up with, you know, three the three strikes policy was carbon copied from a, a similar set of policies in the in the US. Um, whatever new modern manifestation Mark Mitchell comes up with, I, I have no doubt will probably you know similarly um, work off a um, international template. So um, I think by the same token, this is not just something that that forces on on the right can use. And I think you know with Christopher Luxon who who is a, you know, honestly anti-choice pro-life person in in terms of his personal beliefs. With the um, Dobbs decision news, um, you know, obviously grabbing attention um, around the world, but even in New Zealand, I think it's good that the question's being put to him and the pressure is being put on the the National Party. And I don't think people should be afraid to, to, you know, have to... um, use those kind of pressure points where, you know, leaders on the right are at odds with the majority of, of where New Zealanders sit politically. Um, so I think to the extent that those, some of those tactics can be leveraged for, for progressive ends in New Zealand, it, it shouldn't be something people shy away from. I don't think it's good enough just to go, oh, well, Luxon said that he won't repeal the uh, Abortion Legalisation Act 2020 even if you take him at his word on that, um, that it's settled law, which again, we were talking about imported um, discourse. That's exactly how it was discussed in the US up until it turns out that the law wasn't as settled um, as everyone claimed. But even if you take that at face value, um, there are a lot of other um, levers in terms of access, in terms of funding, in terms of, um, you know, the kinds of, services that are getting made available prioritized that you know god forbid minister of health simeon brown um could be you know pulling on to to advance an agenda um, yeah so, i mean just remove access yeah. right 
I think you're right. And I think one of the things that we're, we're talking around is the fact that all of this compounds, right? So um, the impact of COVID on like um, already poor and marginalized communities, then the impact on inflation on those same communities and that, that compounds, like it, it's not, it's not as though everything was fine yesterday. And then you have this one kind of freak event that, that hits these kind of communities or these kind of households hard. Right. It has been one thing after another for the past 18 months, two years. Yeah. And I, I think it comes from a place of a back to normal type mentality of broadly speaking, before March 2020, everything was mostly OK. Yes, there were problems at the margins. But what we need to do is get back to that position and to keep using the same tools to fight the same challenges as we had then. And I, I'm a natural pessimist, but I don't think a lot of these problems are going away. Um, and so the, the scale of the challenges that they should be responding to, um, yeah, isn't, isn't going to decrease. I think that's a good place to end it. We're going to try and put something longer together uh, for Roe v. Wade during the next week or so. Uh, obviously, it's the kind of thing that we want to spend uh, more than a, a short segment on. Um, it just feels bad. <laughs> We've mentioned it a couple of times there, uh, just in, in the context um, of the things we're talking about. And obviously, it was due a mention, uh, considering the impacts of it uh, globally, but also here in New Zealand. I, I think it would have been remiss uh, not to raise it at all. Uh, but yeah, we'll try and put together some health uh, experts, um, some human rights experts, and, and see what we can put together on that. Thank you so much uh, to my guests for, for joining us this morning, though. Thanks all. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed that, uh, give us a follow, give us a share, let people know that we're out there doing independent media about New Zealand and global politics. Every bit of social media help that you give us, uh, every time you share it, uh, helps immeasurably. Independent media is chronically under-resourced. Uh, and on that note, uh, you can find uh, our Patreon in the summary uh, for this episode. If you've got a few dollars to give us a month, please uh, consider helping us out. Uh, it helps us run these weekly episodes, but it also helps us do uh, larger issues episodes around things like Roe v. Wade that we wouldn't be able to do without your support. Um, thanks again so much for listening. We'll catch you next time we cast. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism